So this evening then, it gives me enormous pleasure to uh, welcome Kent, Kent Roach, um, who's at the University of Toronto, talking on Canada's response to its October 2014 terrorist attack. So Kent is Professor of Law at the University of Toronto, where he holds the Pritchard Wilson Chair in Law and Public Policy. Uh, he's also served on the Research Advisory Committee for the RR Commission uh, as Research Director of the Air India uh, Commission uh, and various other public uh, duties. He's uh, written a great deal in terms of articles, book chapters, books and so on. His most recent book uh, was entitled uh, False Security, the Radicalization of Canadian Anti-Terrorism, which uh, he's written with uh, Craig uh, Forsyth, is that? Yeah. Uh, and published uh, just last September. Uh, other books include The 9-11 Effect, Global Anti-Terrorism, Law and Policy, and Comparative Counter-Terrorism, all published by Cambridge University Press. So obviously uh, something an authority in the area of anti-terrorism. Uh, so, uh, welcome, Kent. Thank you for coming along. Um, he, he's uh, in London at the moment, so we were able to uh, grab him while he was here. Uh, and over to you. Oh, thank you very much, Tony, for, for that very generous introduction. So, what, what I'm going to do is uh, I'm going to speak for about 40, 45 minutes, uh, mainly to the book, uh, but also uh, bearing in mind that although I'm a lawyer, uh, I'm going to try to broaden uh, my roots and, and talk about uh, terrorism and some of the political and social challenges that it has and may in the future uh, present uh, for Canada. And then I really would like to open it up uh, to hear from you. Uh, I'm also very happy uh, to field questions on areas uh, outside counterterrorism. I've written uh, uh, quite a bit about the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, the issue of judicial activism. Uh, I also was uh, played, played, uh, was involved with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which of course has just issued its uh, six or seven volume uh, final report. So I recognize that a lot of people are here because of an interest in Canadian studies generally, and, and I hope to be uh, helpful uh, about that. Um, also, I, I probably should say that this book is, is very much a uh, joint effort between uh, uh, Craig uh, Forsays and myself. Uh, and you should also know uh, uh, that uh, we, uh, wasn't really our choice, but we also became, I think, a bit of protagonists uh, in this uh, debate that we had in Canada uh, starting in January 30th of 2015 when the then Conservative gov government introduced uh, Bill C-51, uh, which is now the Anti-Terrorism Act of 2015. And I, in particular, uh, felt like I had an obligation to participate in this public debate uh, about the security bill because, as Tony mentioned, uh, I had spent two years uh, working as part of the Research Advisory C Committee on the ARAR Commission. And the ARAR Commission in Canada was a commission of inquiry that looked at the involvement of Canadian officials in the rendition of Mayor Arar, uh, a, a joint Canadian-Syrian citizen who was taken off a plane in New York City as he was returning from Canada uh, to, uh, from, from, from a trip abroad, uh, detained in the United States for about 10 days, and then put on a uh, what we suspect is a CIA plane and taken to Syria, where he was detained for almost a year and tortured uh, before being let, let go. And so my work on the Arar Commission, as well as my, um, uh, as a person originally from Quebec, uh, whose family was affected, albeit in, in fairly peripheral ways, by the October crisis uh, of 1970, when, of course, martial law was declared in Canada after two acts of terrorism uh, by the FLQ, the, the separatist terrorist group, uh, I'm familiar uh, with 
the danger of overreacting to, ter to, to terrorism, uh, both the October crisis and uh, the Arar uh, 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 rendition where uh, Justice O'Connor found after two years of research that, can that Canada in its uh, perhaps understandable urge to cooperate with the United States after 9-11, because of course you'll remember that some people thought wrongly uh, that the 9-11 uh, uh, terrorists had entered the United States through Canada. That was not true, but it could have been true, frankly. Uh, and so uh, that is an example, I think, of an overreaction uh, to terrorism where uh, in perhaps an understandable desire uh, to prevent an act of terrorism, obviously an emotive act that commands uh, much political attention and much fear, uh, 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 a society overreacts to terrorism. And this is particularly, I think, a danger when we look at the second of the two terrorist attacks that happened in Canada in October 2014. So like many other parts of the world, uh, the Islamic State unfortunately has had an impact on some Canadians. And these were two so-called lone wolf terrorist attacks that fortunately only resulted in one death uh, each time, uh, although the terrorists were also killed in the police response, where it, it seems fairly clear the terrorists were motivated uh, by uh, uh, the Islamic State ideology. Uh, the second, uh, the October 22nd, 2014 terrorist attack, was uh, particularly frightening, I think, for Canadians and uh, garnered uh, uh, world attention because after uh, the terrorist Ziaf Bibo had killed an unarmed soldier standing guard at the war memorial in Ottawa, he then commandeered a car, went on to Parliament Hill, uh, penetrated the Parliament buildings, and got within, uh, frankly, feet of where uh, both the government caucus and the prime minister was in their weekly meetings and the opposition caucus were in their meetings. And, and, and you know, uh, I recently took some visitors uh, from Australia for a tour of the parliament buildings. They've obviously uh, um, uh, um, tried to fix it, but you can still see marks of, uh, of the gunshots that were fired within the Canadian Parliament. So this, this is obviously, uh, to, to say the least, an unsettling event. And I think a particularly unsettling event for politicians in Canada who were quite literally uh, and reasonably uh, in fear for their lives before uh, the, uh, the uh, terrorists who fortunately was only armed with a hunting rifle and not something a little bit more high-powered as we've seen uh, tragically in, in, in Paris. Uh, his life was ended uh, as the RCMP uh, eventually came in and, 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 and uh, um, uh, killed him. Um, so the danger of overreacting is something uh, that we should bear in mind. Uh, as Tony mentioned, though, uh, I also spent four years as a director of research into the Air India Commission. And for those of you who don't know, uh, the Air India bombing in 1985 uh, was started in British Columbia by uh, uh, terrorists uh, committed to uh, the independence of the Sikh territory in, uh, in, in India. Uh, two bombs... Uh, were placed in luggage uh, starting uh, in Vancouver. Uh, one bomb exploded at, at Narita Airport in Japan, killing two baggage handlers. Uh, the other bomb exploded in the belly of a 747, Air India 747, killing 329 people. Uh, June 22, 1985, uh, was the most deadly act 
of terrorism, uh, before uh, uh, aviation terrorism, uh, before 9-11. And the Air India inquiry was not uh, appointed until 2006. It was a commitment that then Prime Minister Stephen Harper made. Uh, and uh, 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 the commission spent four years uh, really detailing both uh, the failures that allowed uh, Air India to happen, which was a failure to communicate uh, the intelligence. There was fairly specific intelligence at the time that Sikh terrorists in Canada, uh, particularly in BC, uh, were planning something. Uh, this was coming up on the anniversary of the Indian raid on the Golden, Golden Temple. Uh, the Air India Commission unearthed uh, fairly specific intelligence that unfortunately did not get into the right hands uh, with obviously tragic results. Uh, the other part of Air India, which I think shows an underreaction to terrorism, is uh, the, 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 the botched investigations after uh, this, this investigation. And the long and short of it is uh, Canada's largest mass murder uh, that killed 331 people saw a grand total of only one person uh, convicted uh, twice. Uh, for manslaughter. So um, the Air India Commission in 2010 released its report, uh, obviously addressed to, uh, to the Harper government that appointed it, that detailed uh, you know, a fair litany of intelligence failures. And one of the reasons why I felt I had to become active uh, when uh, uh, the Conservative government in January 30th, 2015 proposed a legislative response to the two terror attacks in October 2014 is that I felt that it did uh, perhaps the difficult trick, uh, although the tragic trick, of both overreacting in ways that could threaten democratic freedoms, but also underreacting to terrorism in not dealing with some of the more or less structural flaws uh, and structural flaws that are very much embedded in the uneasy relationship between CSIS, the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, which was created as a domestic, uh, uh, now also foreign, uh, security intelligence service in 1984, and how CSIS gets along with the RCMP and prosecutors with respect to uh, the investigation of terrorism, which of course is both a security threat and a, uh, a crime. And especially after 9-11 and Canada enacted a host of new terrorism offenses in response to 9-11, in response to UN Security Council 1373, this overlap between intelligence and evidence has, has really become, I think, more pervasive. And one of my concerns uh, about uh, the government's response to the October 2014, 2014 attacks is that it did not plug up what the Air India Commission had uh, had diagnosed as some pretty fundamental fault, faults in how Canada pursues uh, national security. So for better or worse, and, and obviously the government of, of the day disagreed, and, and interestingly the politics was quite interesting because the liberal government, which is or the liberal uh, party, which is now the governing party under Justin Trudeau, actually supported Bill C-51. It was the NDP, which at that time was the official opposition, that opposed Bill C-51. But just so everyone's clear, for, for the record, uh, Craig and I uh, felt like we really had no choice but to be fairly active uh, on, on, on this. We wrote uh, what we called real-time scholarship of, uh, I think, uh, uh, between January 30th and February 28th, 
So around this time last year, we wrote over 200 pages of legal analysis, put it out on the web. Uh, it was also the coldest February on record in Canada, so don't feel particularly uh, sorry for us. We were both on sabbatical, so we, we stayed warm, uh, huddled around our computers, and wrote feverishly. Um, we also wrote uh, uh, probably too many op-eds uh, in order to kind of you know say look here's here's our short version of how we interpret this legislation and if you have any other questions you can and, and if you have a desire you can consult the 50 page memo that is now on the web and then we eventually uh, uh, took the memos uh, and did a lot of other research and produced the book that I passed around false security which was published shortly before the election and 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 that's not a coincidence we went with a publisher who we knew uh, could produce the book in near record time. Uh, so that's, that's a little bit of my background. So what I'd like to do in the remaining time is just go through the ways that I think the Canadian legislation first overreacts to uh, what is a real terrorist threat. Uh, that Canada, like many parts of the world, is facing, and then how it underreacts uh, to some of the flaws and problems that the Air India Commission, in particular, identified. So there's four main areas where I think Bill C-51 overreacts. So uh, the first is, as in October 1970. When, when the War Measures Act was declared, there is a focus on speech and ideas associated with terrorism, but that are not actual preparation to commit terrorist violence. So uh, Bill C-51 uh, adds a 15th terrorist offense to the Canadian Criminal Code. I, I didn't bring my Canadian Criminal Code with me from Canada because it would have put me uh, over my, my baggage limit on Air Canada. If, if uh, uh, any of you are familiar, the Canadian Criminal Code is about that thick now. We had 14 terrorism offenses largely enacted after 9-11, largely pattern on British uh, uh, terrorism offenses. Uh, but there's a new offense added in Bill C-51, which is uh, advocating or promoting uh, terrorism offenses in general while being reckless that someone may commit a terrorism offense as a result of the advocacy. And uh, this, this was actually a terrorism offense that Canada borrowed not from Britain, but from Australia. So the Australians had a few months earlier, uh, uh, the Abbott government at the time had enacted this as one of their responses to foreign terrorist fighters. And so the government included this in, uh, in Bill C-51. And our argument was, one, we didn't know what terrorism offenses in general meant. Uh, that it is un, un, undefined. Second, that the fault requirement for that particular offense is simply you have to know that you are doing something as opposed to desiring the commission of a terrorism offense. So we basically made an argument, not that free speech is absolute, because it certainly isn't absolute, and it's not absolute under the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which allows reasonable limits on rights, but rather that there should be a higher fault level and there should be specific defenses to allow a full range of uh, robust ideas. Because it's important to remember that a terrorism offense could be terrorism financing of a group far away from Canada. So one of our concerns was a concern that someone who said you should give money to Hamas, right, could be guilty under this new offense. And we thought that that was a needless uh, uh, incursion on democratic freedoms. Now, it remains to be seen 
whether the new liberal government will delete this offense. We've certainly argued that it should. All we know is that the new Minister of Justice has been given a mandate letter which instructs her to uh, reform the problematic aspects of Bill C-51. This is, in our view, one of the more problematic aspects of Bill C-51. Remains to be seen what the new government thinks. So that's one form of overreaction. The second form of overreaction, and again I hearken back to the October crisis, is as I think is well known, when the War Measures Act, when uh, Prime Minister Trudeau number one uh, declared the War Measures Act in October of 1970, there were over 500 people, uh, or close to 500 people, who were arrested under the War Measures Act. And none of these people were charged with terrorism offense. They were simply people that got on lists uh, that were compiled and, and the historical record is still evolving, uh, may not even have been compiled by the then RCMP Security Service, but they were arrested not because they were involved in terrorism, but because they were separatists. And they were uh, 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 Quebecois separatists who were known to be Quebecois separatists. And this is now seen by almost all in, in Canada as a kind of regrettable incidence of false positives. And in doing some of the historical research for the book, uh, I would not underestimate uh, the role that the October crisis of 1970 played in the creation of both the 1982 Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Pierre Trudeau never said he regretted invoking the War Measures Act, but he did uh, 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 create a Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms that would have restrained the invocation of the War Measures Act. And of course, it was the, the War Measures Act as well as RCMP illegalities in the wake of the War Measures Act. Because remember, you know, FLQ, separatist violence in 1970. What does Canada have in 1976? The Olympics, the Montreal Olympics. What happened in the 1972 Olympics? The Munich Olympics. So there was huge international pressure on Canada to make sure that their Olympics was not marred by the sort of awful terrorist violence that we saw in Munich in 1972. And there were all kinds of overreactions, most famously the RCMP, in order to disrupt a uh, reported meeting between the FLQ and the Black Panthers, decided the best way to do it was to burn down the barn that the meeting was supposed to take take place. So there's almost a direct line, I would argue, and, and we suggest in chapter two of our book, which is uh, available very cheaply for $35 from Irwin Law's website, that almost a direct line from the overreaction of the War Measures Act in 70 and the creation of CSIS uh, uh, as a civilian intelligence agency that would not be allowed to engage in the kind of illegalities that the RCMP did, perhaps understandably, in the aftermath of the October crisis. So how does Bill C-51 fit into this? Well, Bill C-51 makes it easier to have preventive arrests extends the period of preventive arrest from three to seven days, which is not dramatic. Uh, in this country, it's 14 days. If, if Tony Blair had had his way, it would have been 90 days, and it's been as high as 28 days. But by lowering the standard, by lowering the standard for peace bonds, which are a kind of control order for people who are suspected of involvement of terrorism, but of whom almost by definition we don't have evidence to prosecute them, and by uh, it, uh, making it easier to put people on no-fly lists and passport revocation, all of this was done in the response to October 2014. And our argument was that although 
to an extent, this could be understandable from a precautionary point of view. When you lower those standards for these preemption, uh, these techniques of prevention, you will increase false positives. And the false positives will, in today's climate, fall upon the Muslim community. And in Canada, if you've been following the CBC, there is a huge controversy over a person who has been wrongly put on our no-fly list. His name is Siad Adam Ahmed. He's six years old. <laughs> he was almost prevented from accompanying his father to Boston to see the Montreal Canadiens play hockey. Now, this is as close to original sin as Canadians get, right? <laughs> to prevent a six-year-old from going with dad to see his favorite hockey team, Les Canadiens, play is, if anything is un-Canadian, that is un-Canadian. So this issue of kind of false positives when it comes to things like no-fly lists, right? Because, I, and I'm happy to talk about this, but as a person interested in counterterrorism, I really see that, that what this is, is a kind of a use of intelligence. And intelligence is about giving the government advance warning about security threats. But now what we see, and this isn't only in Canada, it's throughout the world, is we're increasingly seeing the use of secret intelligence as evidence to impose fairly serious legal consequences on individuals. Might not be a criminal conviction, but if any of us were put on a no-fly list, this would be a not insignificant sort of thing. And so part of our, our, our plea was that Bill C-51 should have been tightened up uh, to minimize false positives, which to the extent that they can be an irritant in community relations, can actually be counterproductive, right? So one of the October uh, uh, 2014 uh, terrorists, not the one who got into the parliament buildings, the first guy, Couture Rouleau, had actually had his passport taken away during the summer of 2014 because he wanted to go to Syria to join uh, the Islamic State. We had his passport taken away, but that obviously was not particularly effective in stopping him from murdering uh, a uh, uniformed person of the Canadian forces, a little bit like what happened with poor uh, um, uh, uh, Lee Rigby in this country. So that's the second overreaction. The third overreaction that we diagnose in Bill C-51 is we come back to kind of the bad old days of institutionalized illegality by our security service. So I, so I have explained what happened after the October crisis, how that produced the McDonald Commission, the Cabell Commission, and how that eventually led to the creation of CSIS. Well, one of the things that Bill C-51 does is it allows CSIS now for the very first time to take physical actions to reduce threats to the security of Canada. So it kind of makes CSIS, which was created as purely an intelligence agency, into a kind of mini kind of police force. Now there are some restraints. So if CSIS wants to violate the law, and if they want to violate someone's charter rights, they need to go to court and get a warrant. And so CSIS can now get a warrant if, if a judge says it is proportionate to the threat to take actions that are illegal and even those that violate charter rights. Now the charter right that I think is probably most at play here is the right of Canadians under Section 6 of the Charter either to leave Canada or to return to Canada. So there's a mobility rights in the Charter. And CSIS was not particularly candid about why they wanted the power to violate the Charter, but my own theory is they probably wanted to take steps to disrupt people from leaving Canada to join IS in Syria and Iraq, and perhaps to take steps 
to prevent them from returning to Canada after they had participated in IS's activities. If CSIS had asked for that, I think we could have had a fairly uh, uh, structured debate about whether that was permissible. This country has enacted exclusion orders that allow orders to keep out people who even if they are British citizens have engaged in terrorist activities abroad. Our problem was that C-51 basically gave CSIS a blank check as long as a federal judge filled it out to violate any charter right. And we thought that that was overbroad and threatened char 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 charter rights. To be fair to the government, the government was saying, and it was kind of ironic because the Harper government was not known for its love of the judiciary, but the government was saying, don't worry, a judge is going to sign off on, on this. Now, <clears throat> our response to that was twofold. One is C-51 allows CSIS to take physical steps to reduce threats to security of Canada. You only need a warrant if you're going to violate a law or the charter. And CSIS has already testified that even without those warrants, they have exercised this new, what we call physical or kinetic man, man, mandate. And second, this court hearing is going to be a relatively one-sided affair. This is a warrant procedure. This is not an adversarial hearing where the target is representative, but rather uh, a, a, a government lawyer going to a specially designated federal court judge uh, with uh, kind of secret information saying, well, look, you know, this person is a terrorist suspect and we really do need to do this illegal activity in order to reduce threats, not simply of terrorism, but reduce any threat to the security of Canada as defined in the CSIS Act. The fourth overreaction, in our view, was Bill C-51 created a new uh, a piece of legislation called the Security of Canada Information Sharing Act. And this authorizes any federal entity to collect and share security-related information with 17 designated federal institutions. And one of our concerns was not that information sharing should not happen, because I'm going to talk about that in terms of underreaction, but rather that rather than use threats to the security of Canada, which have been defined in the CSIS Act since 1984, the government created a new category of, of activities that undermine the security of Canada, which includes any activity that undermines the sovereignty, security, or territorial integrity of Canada, or the lives or the security of the people of Canada. That's an astoundingly broad definition of security interests. It could include, I mean, separatists, right, want to disrupt the territorial integrity of Canada. Goes on to say it includes interference with public safety uh, uh, or the economic or financial stability of Canada. It includes interference with critical infrastructure. So includes activities that undermine the security of another state as long as that activity takes place in Canada. So this is an astoundingly broad and radical and novel definition of Canada's security in interest. We couldn't understand why they just didn't use the tried and true and broad uh, definition of threats to security of Canada in the CSIS Act. And this tr triggered, uh, after some time, a lot of civil society pushback to C-51. Because you can imagine that if you're an anti-globalization, anti-petroleum protester, you might very well be worried that this is going to authorize all sorts of information sharing about you. So when Bill C-51 was introduced in January 30th, 2015, Canada was obviously shaken by the terrorist attacks. I think public opinion polls showed between 80 and 90 percent support for Bill C-51. 
So Craig and I writing in opposition to it that cold month of February felt rather lonely. Uh, but uh, by the time it was passed, uh, public support was down to about 60%. And uh, interestingly enough, the public opinion polls suggested that people who knew more about C51 uh, were the majority of, of those who said, yeah, I actually know what's in the bill. The majority of those actually oppose Bill C-51. Now, it wasn't just us. There was a lot of civil society mobilization. But it was, I think, a little bit of a prelude to some of the mobilization that we saw in the October uh, election. And I gather you've already had some panels on the October uh, uh, 2015 election, so I won't get into that. So those are the ways that C-51 overreacts. A little more quickly now, though, I want to say that you know one of the reasons why I felt comfortable coming out fairly strongly against C-51 is I also felt that it underreacted to ter terrorism and largely ignored the Air India Commission's recommendations. So first of all, uh, the Security of Information Act, or the Security of Canada Information Act, Sharing Act that I talked about is this broad permissive information sharing, but it does not require mandatory information sharing. And in particular, it does not require, require CSIS to share information about possible terrorism offenses with any other agency in the Canadian government. And the Air India Commission said, look, CSIS should have to share information about terrorism offenses with someone in the Canadian uh, government. Right now, CSIS and the RCMP often conduct overlapping terrorism investigations where CSIS is very reluctant to give the police a lot of the intelligence that it is gathering about possible terrorism offenses. Why is that so? Well, the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, as interpreted in a case called Stinchcombe, has a, gives the accused one of the broadest rights of disclosure, a constitutional right to disclosure of all relevant and non-privileged information that the state has in relation to the investigation. And so CSIS doesn't want to give a lot of information to the police because they fear and with some reason that this might ultimately lead to the disclosure of their sources and methods. And you don't have to read many spy novels or see many spy movies, in, including the brilliant series that I enjoy watching on BBC last, last night based on the Le Carre books, to know that the last thing spies want to do is disclose sources and methods. And what Justice Major said in the Air India Commission is basically, I understand CSIS doesn't want to give its crown jewels, its sources and methods to the RCMP. It doesn't trust the RCMP. And, and the RCMP is, frankly, you know, having a rather rough time of it lately. But it should have to give it to someone who can then, in the public interest, make a decision whether that information should be disclosed to the police in order for terrorism investigations and possibly terrorism arrests to be made. But that has not changed with Bill C-51. Indeed, if you think about the new disruption powers that CSIS has given under Bill C-51, it actually makes sense in a world where CSIS is going to be reluctant to disclose intelligence to the RCMP because at least this allows CSIS to take disruption efforts to prevent something from going boom, right? Which is better than something going boom. We certainly don't disagree with that. But Craig and I would argue that if someone is going to engage in terrorist violence, the proper response is to give it 
to give the necessary intelligence to the police and allow the police to make arrests. Even under Bill C-51, CSIS is not a police force. They're not going to arrest and prosecute people. They're simply going to disrupt people. And even if they are particularly adept at disrupting people, what happens after you disrupt a potential terrorist? Well, you've disrupted them one time. But if you're not prosecuting them, you have to keep them under perpetual surveillance until they fall off the radar screen. And if you're so, so unlucky that they then go back and do something, uh, then we're into another kind of security crisis and we will have another public inquiry. So, 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 so that's the first underreaction is it does nothing to, to fix what a number of people, including Bob Ray, who did a preliminary report to the Air India Commission, called this intelligence evidence problem. Second, uh, uh, Justice Major, and it was very controversial within the security establishment in Ottawa, said basically we need something like a national security czar. That uh, basically CSIS and the RCMP have been more or less fighting since the creation of CSIS in 1984. They certainly say things are a lot better now, but they're fighting not because of personalities, but because they have different mandates. One has a mandate to gather secret intelligence, the other has a mandate to collect evidence that is eventually going to be made public to prosecute people. So no amount of, 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 of personality fixes are going to deal with that. And Justice Major said, you know, basically you need someone to, to break heads and to decide who wins when there are conflicts between security agencies. And he recommended that the Prime Minister's National Security Advisor be given new powers and new responsibilities to resolve these conflicts. Bill C-51 did nothing. Interestingly enough, all indications are the new Trudeau government is not going to do that as well. Right? So one of the interesting things here is to what extent will a new government be captive to CSIS? I mean, basically, my sense of the realpolitik is CSIS got more or less everything that they wanted in the security package. I think it's going to be interesting when the Trudeau government, you know, and of course this has already happened, gets their first top secret briefing and they're told by CSIS, well, you can maybe take away our Bill C-51 powers, but we got X amount of investigations, active investigations, where we're, we're using these powers, right? There's a very interesting book that Charlie Savage, a very long book, almost as long as our book, Charlie Savage wrote about how the Obama White House, when they got in, started to find out that things were a little bit more complicated than they might have thought when they were in opposition. So I, so I just kind of put that. But I will say that one of the things, and, and this was one of our recommendations in the book, so we'll take credit. One of the reasons why the Air India Commission thought that a enhanced secu uh, Prime Minister's National Security Advisor role was necessary was the Minister of Public Safety, uh, who in a parliamentary democracy, it is the minister ultimately who is accountable, had not been able to resolve these conflicts between CSIS and the RCMP because they both report to the Minister of Public Safety, which is kind of a Canadian version of the Home Secretary. One of the things the new Trudeau government do has done is it has appointed its most senior cabinet minister, Ralph Goodale, is now the Minister of Public Safety. And so this goes back to the Anne McClellan model. Anne McClellan was the first Minister of Public Safety, and the Ministry of Public Safety was created in the wake of 9-11 to provide, I think, a Canadian counterpart to the Department of Homeland Security in the United States. So I take some comfort that we have an extremely experienced cabinet minister, whereas Minister Blaney, who was the Minister of Public Safety, and you know, we admittedly had spats with him. Uh, he called us so-called experts. Uh, we replied that he was 17th in order of precedence in, in the, the cabinet. But basically, we were saying someone 
had to be in, in, in charge. So that's the second underreaction. The third underreaction in Bill C-51, and I only have one more and then I'll open it up for questions. The third underreaction is the, the Harper government really felt, well, their official line was, we don't need to add additional review to security matters because that is, quote, needless red tape. Well, one of the problems is we still have not had a full accounting of why the October 2014 attacks occurred, right? We've not had a lesson learned about why someone was able to get into the heart of parliament with a gun. And I contrast this with Australia. The Australians had a very similar terrorist attack in Sydney in, uh, I think it was December uh, 2015. By January, the Australians, to their credit, had issued a 80-page uh, factual report about all the dealings that they had had with the terrorist, Harold Mann, Mann Monas. In Canada, still, there is no kind of public accounting of what went wrong with both of these terrorist uh, 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 attacks, both in terms of the penetration of Parliament you know, on, on October 22nd, 2014, but also the, the fact that they knew about Couture Rouleau, they had enough information to take his passport away to prevent him traveling from Syria, but they did no other action. Is this an example of the intelligence to evidence problem? We frankly don't know because there's not been, been an, a, a, an accounting. And I think Canada is particularly reluctant to air security flaws publicly. I mean, we did not have the full story about the 1985 Air India bombing until 2010. And I think Canada in a post 9-11 environment is perhaps understandably, reluctant to have full public inquiries into its security flaws because the Americans will be concerned, right? So, I mean, it was Hillary Clinton uh, who said that the 9-11 hijackers entered Canada through, uh, uh, entered the United States through Canada. Uh, Mrs. Clinton was wrong, but again, that's a testament to a kind of bipartisan concern in Washington that Canada not become kind of a weak, you know, northern flank with respect to American security. But again, it seems to us that review is actually important both for rights and both for security. And again, what the new liberal government has committed to is that there will be, although the details are not known, and Minister Goodale has been here looking at your intelligence and security committee, but there will be a parliamentary committee that will, for the first time, have access to secret information. So Canada is the only part of the Five Eyes intelligence network that does not trust its parliamentarians with access to secret information. And so that, that will be legislation forthcoming from the new government. And I, I'd be happy to expand on, 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 on that. The last underreaction that we criticized uh, Canada's response to the 2014 attacks, and this is in chapter 13 of our book, is <clears throat> there was nothing in... Uh, 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 in the response that dealt with countering violent extremism. Uh, Prime Minister Harper quite famously said uh, uh, that uh, uh, um, we should not commit sociology when dealing with terrorists. We should simply deal with terrorists as harshly as possible. Um, well, uh, unfortunately, the Islamic State is gaining recruits. And one of the things that we point out is that there is a need for a prevention program. I recognize that your prevent program in, in this country is extremely uh, controversial. And I think that we, we have a lot to learn, perhaps 
if only from mistakes, from the UK experience. But basically, Canada really doesn't have any version of countering violent extremism. And one of the challenges that we will have going forward is, of course, if you don't have a countering violent extremism that is led by security agencies like the RCMP and CSIS, and this was incidentally one of CSIS's uh, professed reasons for wanting to have its new powers to take actions to reduce threats to the security of Canada is CISA said, well, we need to talk to the family members of those who are thinking of joining the Islamic State. Uh, but if CSIS and the RCMP are not going to play a lead role with respect to prevent, Canada will have difficulties, as, as does Australia, as does the United States, because it's, it's a federalism. And if you think that education and health uh, and you know, employment discrimination and things like that uh, have a role in countering violent extremism, then you need to involve the provinces. And again, we don't really know what direction Canada's prevent program will go, but the new government has indicated, although they haven't appointed this person yet, that they will appoint a countering violent extremism coordinator. And it seems to me that the choice of the word coordinator suggests that the new government has, uh, perhaps contrary to the first Trudeau government, indicated a willingness to work with the provinces. And it will be in interesting to see how the PREVENT program is rolled out in Canada and how it makes use of provincial jurisdiction. Quebec has actually been the most active with respect to PREVENT, but Unfortunately, in my view, uh, it has largely mimicked uh, a more punitive federal response. So Quebec has introduced two bills. Uh, one, one bill deals basically with hate speech and provides for a kind of provincial control or, or order revolving around hate speech and honor crime. And the second bill... Uh, quite controversial, would uh, uh, perhaps uh, a little bit like France prohibit people from either giving or receiving uh, public services while their face is veiled. And that is, of course, obviously a very controversial sort of issue. So going forward, uh, I think that you should look to uh, the Trudeau government to move ahead on the parliamentary committee that will have access to secret information. They will move ahead on the Countering Violent Extremism Program. They have just last week introduced Bill C-6, which will uh, repeal uh, the citizenship stripping provisions that the Harper government enacted in 2014, which said basically citizenship for dual nationals can be stripped for national security reasons. The Trudeau government is repealing that. It's taking some political hits at, 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 at home. But again, I don't think citizenship stripping is really a very good counterterrorism instrument. It tries to see the terrorist threat as a threat that's either a foreign threat or a threat that can be made foreign, where it seems to me that, unfortunately, we have plenty of examples of homegrown terrorism in, uh, in, in Canada. And finally, it remains to be seen exactly what parts of Bill C-51 that the new government will see as problematic. If they read our book and if they agree with our book, they will see a lot of Bill C-51 is problematic, but I also wouldn't be terribly surprised if, if they see much less as problematic. So that's basically uh, my views about how Canada has done the, 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 the unenviable uh, trick of both overreacting and underreacting to uh, our October 2014 terrorist uh, attacks. I'm sure I've said a lot that's controversial, so I welcome any questions, challenges, and so forth. Thank you very much for listening.